0: After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I'd like to ask a blessing on the sermon this morning. Abba, Father, fill us, God, with the thoughts a view that we hear from your word, the thoughts of Jesus, the thoughts of the Holy Spirit, that when we hear your name, we would be in awe, and we would reverence you, and we would attribute to you all of the wonders of creation, and your grace, and your mercy, and your love. Father, please bless as we hear your word that you would work in our hearts, that we would understand your word, that we would be drawn closer to you, that we would hold you in the highest regard as our King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, please bless in this sermon, please bless in the text, please just fill us with wisdom, God, that we would know you and we would walk with you and we would obey you, that you might bless us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen. I continue to
1: wrestle with how to help us understand the book of Revelation and the way that it is written. And uh, I was thinking a little bit earlier as we were singing about another way maybe to think about it. And I probably shouldn't say it because I haven't thought about it long enough, but I'm going to anyhow. You might hire somebody to write an autobiography of you. And so it would be a very verbal, a a very um, wordy uh, description of your life. And it would be true, and it would be very understandable. But if you were really creative, you might hire somebody to draw a pictorial view of your life. And so they might come up with various symbols and um, uh, pictures and images that represent um, certain aspects of your life. That would be a very true description of your life, as would the autobiography that was written, just another way of looking at your life. One of the things that I do from time to time when I go out um, for coffee um, or for a meal, if the waiter or the waitress has a tattoo and I've got guts, I'll ask them, What does that mean? And often the tattoo is a symbol or it's a picture, it represents a, a part of their life or a time in their life. And so, that picture puts in words part of the reality of their life so we come to the book of revelation and we understand that revelation is symbols it's figures it's a pictorial um, visionary way of understanding the plans and purposes of God if you wish I say this very carefully it's a tattoo of God's summary of history pictures and symbols. It's apocalyptic literature. It's highly symbolic and dramatically figurative. And so one of the challenges of this book, in particular, this last challenge, is to work our way through those symbols and pictures. And one of the ways that we do that is we turn to some of the more plain texts of Scripture. Because one of the key, to, uh, key interpretive principles of Scripture is the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. And also, when there's something in Scripture that you find difficult, try and find something that is, um, or look through Scripture for the things that are more simple, that explain that difficult thing. And so we come to Revelation chapter 20, and it's a difficult passage of Scripture. Uh, One of the ways I think that you might be helped in trying to understand what's going here is to go this afternoon and read Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 describes the coming of the kingdom of God and the end of the kingdom of God in in parables. And so you'll find two or three parables written there that describe the coming of the kingdom and then the end of the kingdom and the end of the age. Uh, Another thing you can do is go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 28, and there you will find a literal description of the last days in eight verses. And then you come to Revelation chapter 20, and you find this symbolic pictorial view, and they're layered on one another, and it will help you understand uh, what's going on here. When we come to this thousand years in Revelation chapter 20, there's a a couple things that I think are helpful to note. First of all, Revelation chapter 20, um, verses 1 to 6, describe the thousand years. And they describe it from two perspectives. They describe the thousand years from the perspective of what's going on on earth. One aspect of that. And then they describe what's going on in heaven. Same thousand year period. One perspective from what's going on on earth. And the other perspective from what's going on in heaven. And then you come to um, verses 7 to 10. And they describe again what happens after the thousand years here on earth. And then you go to chapter 20, verse um, 11 to 15, and we read what happens in heaven after the thousand years. So there's a fairly clear structure. The thousand years, what's going on in heaven and earth? And then what happens after the thousand years, what's going on in heaven and earth? So John describes then, first of all, in verses 1 to 6, what is going on or what happens during the thousand years. As I understand the thousand years as they're recorded here in John, I understand them to be symbolic. I don't believe we are, to me- we are meant to take this number literally. Almost every number that we have come across already in the book of Revelation has been figurative. Uh, The the number seven, it's a number of completeness, a number of wholeness. Um, The number 144,000, it's a, a number that represents the wholeness or the fullness of God's church, the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. The number 10 is a number of perfection, a number of completeness, a number of wholeness. And so the numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic that describe images or pictures or realities that are beyond the literalness of the number. When we come to a thousand, a thousand is ten times ten times ten, or ten to the power of three. Perfection to the power of three, completeness to the power of three. It's meant to be a, a, a to remind us of a complete but a long period of time. It's an indefinite period of time. It, it's used. A thousand years is used to describe simply a long period of time. It's a time during which God's plan and purposes for his church is completed. We know that this is how language is used. A thousand is used a number of ways in in the Bible. Um, For instance, uh, in Psalm chapter 50, verse 10, it says, God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. So who owns the cattle on a thousand and one hill? Or a thousand and the twentieth hill? You see, we understand that's not a literal number, right? We understand that that's a description of saying God owns it all. Every hill, God owns the cattle on those hills. We come to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we read there as uh, we are waiting for the coming of the Lord that uh, his time period and our time period is different. A day uh, uh, before the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Uh, That's a way of saying that God is outside time. And and a thousand years is just a long, long time for God. Or we go back to Joshua and we read there where um, Joshua says in verse uh, chapter twenty-three, verse ten, that one man amongst Israel will set to flight a thousand in their enemies. Now, we're not meant to take that literally. Like, every, for every man that goes out to battle, a thousand of the enemies run. What well, that's a way of describing is it. that there, there is an overwhelming might and power between the, be, behind the armies of God and their enemies. And they go against numerous hordes and are victorious. So when we come to understand this word, a thousand, at least for me, a thousand is meant to describe an indefinite, But long period of time in which the fullness and the completeness of God's plan is worked out. It's a time of perfection. And as I understand it, it's another way of looking at the last days. Remember, the last days are the period of time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, the time between the birth of Christ and the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. And so, What's going on in this thousand years? Well, John tells us three things that are going on during this thousand year reign. This is not everything, but these are the three things that John wants to highlight for us. First of all, he tells us that Satan is bound on earth. He says in verses 1 to 3, I, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his can, or hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended, and then he must be released for a little while. There's no question who's being bound here, is there? It's Satan. It's the devil. It's the, uh, the dragon. It's the ancient serpent. Fascinating, it's the exact four descriptions that are used of Satan in Revelation chapter 12. When Satan is kicked out of heaven, the exact four, same four descriptors, descriptors are used. And then John adds one more thing in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, which I think is really helpful in chapter 20. He says, and he was the deceiver of nations. So we have the same description of the dragon in chapter 12 and in chapter 20, thrown out of heaven, and he is the deceiver of nations. So what does it mean? Well, we, sometimes we overlook the obvious. We have schemes and plans in our head, and, and those overtake the, 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 just what's in the text. And what does the text say? It says Satan was bound, he was seized, it was put in a pit, it was sealed over. Why? Notice what it says. It says it very clearly. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. There's a very limited um, restriction put on Satan here. He is bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And then in verse 8 of chapter 20, it's very clearly stated that what he will do when he is released is he will deceive the nations. So for a thousand years, for this period of time, Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. That doesn't mean that Satan isn't active. We know he's active. He goes around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He is the father of lies. He, he looks to get a foothold into, into people's lives. Satan is still very, very active in the world in which we live. All it says in Revelation is that it is bound from doing one thing, and that is from deceiving the nations. Think about this with me. Go back to Job. For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament and the story of Job, you remember there that at a certain period of time, um, people uh, came before the presence of God, and Satan was among them who came before the presence of God. And God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That's one thing I want God never to do is point me out to (laughs) Satan. But he says, have you ever considered my servant Job? And he said, well, I have. But he only loves you, God, because of all the blessings you've poured out on his life. And so what does God say? He says, okay, Satan, everything that is in Job's power is yours. You can touch it, but do not touch Job. And so you go and you read in chapter 1 of the terrible destruction that Satan unleashed in Job's life. But he did not touch his body. And then you come to chapter 2. And Satan's back, and, and they have this conversation again. And God, one, once more time, says, have you considered my servant Job? And he says, well, he only loves you because you haven't touched his body. Take away his health, touch his body, and then he'll curse you. And so God says, okay, you can do whatever you want to him, only do not kill him. And so, as you know, Satan goes and causes these horrible boils to come into Satan's body. The point being, Satan is still active, but God restricts him specifically from doing a couple things in Satan's life. And so, that's the point that I'm making here, that Revelation 12, all it says is that Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. Doesn't mean he can't do other things, but he's bound from deceiving the nations for a thousand years. Have you ever noticed that throughout the Old Testament, apart from a few exceptions, and they're usually individuals, that the kingdom of God does not expand the nations continue to zero in on Israel. They continue to, to come after Israel. They continue to, to tempt Israel to their idols and their idolatry. They try to decimate Israel. Israel is meant to tell them about God, but the, the, the nations don't come to God. As I say, there's only a few individuals throughout the Old Testament that come to God. In fact, the Bible says that in the Old Testament, the nations walked in darkness. They had not the light of God in their lives. But when Jesus came, there was an incredible turning point that happened. Do you know how many times it says in the uh, early points of uh, the Gospels and in some of the t- prophecies that, that um, uh, um, uh, light shone in the darkness? All of a sudden, the darkness in which the nations lived was taken away. And the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ was able to shine into the darkness of the Gentile nations that were around the world. Jesus describes himself that, that his coming was like the captives being released. You, you tie this with the fact that the apostles at the end of the, the time when Jesus was with them, Jesus said to them, remember he said to them, and it's what we think think about too. He says, now go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Remember what what is said to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? I think I'll read it because I think I I messed it up this morning. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If I was Barry, I'd say turn to the center, go left, go right, go up, go down. Um, (laughs) Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Remember when John hears the number of the saints in heaven, he hears the number 144,000. But when he turns around, what does he see? I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in right robes, with palm branches, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. How is that possible? How do we account for the darkness that covers all of the Old Testament, and all of a sudden the light and the gospel and the expansion of gospel around the world When Christ is exalted into heaven, I think it's because of the binding of Satan. I'll be specific in a moment, but Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. He's bound from uniting the world in a hostile attempt to destroy the church and the people of God. He's bound from having the freedom to keep darkness over the people so they hate the church, destroy the church until the end of the last days. And that's what we see again and again in the book of Revelation. We find this one word used, or two words, the war or the battle in in chapter 6 verse 14, in chapter 19 verse 19, in chapter 20 verse 8 that 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 satan is planning to attack the church and if god did not bind him if god did not restrict him he would circumvent the plan of god and destroy it before its time destroy it before the gospel had gone to the ends of the earth hope you understand it from this way remember when christ came to earth satan's goal was to destroy christ he started in the old testament he tried to destroy it in the garden. Then he tried to destroy it by snuffing out the kingly line. And then when Christ was born, he tried to destroy Christ by having all the baby boys in Nazareth killed, hoping that he could kill Jesus. And then um, uh, 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 when, he, when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, his attempt was to take away Christ from God. And then we find that the, uh, the people of Nazareth wanted to kill Jesus, but Jesus walked right through them because it wasn't his time. And then we have all the chief priests and the leaders of Israel wanting to kill Jesus, but they are unable to do it until when? Until Jesus says, now is your time. And you come and you, you read that Jesus, after coming out of the garden of Gethsemane, he says, and now is the hour of darkness. In other words, God prevented Satan up until his perfect time, when the fullness of time came, God then allowed Satan to kill Christ. Not a moment before, but at the perfect time. And in the same way, God restricts Satan from inhibiting the expansion of the kingdom of God in this world until when, Jesus says this, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations... And then the end will come. See, in other words, Satan is bound till the purposes and timing of God is completed in sending the gospel out to all nations, and then he will be released. When does this binding happen? It's, I don't, I don't, there's, there's not a precise second in when it happened, but I think it happened somewhere during the time of Christ here on earth. We read in Revelation 20 that Satan was bound. Jesus uses that exact same word when he says this, but if by the spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter into the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. I suspect that's a reference to the binding of Revelation chapter 20. We also read in Revelation 20 that Satan is thrown down into the pit. This is the same root word from, that John uses when he tells us uh, 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 that the ruler of this world will be cast out when Jesus is crucified. John writes, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, thrown down. And I, when I am lifted up from, all, from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So, loved ones, as I see it, what John is telling us here is during this thousand-year period, Satan is bound from deceiving the nations, prematurely prohibiting the spread of the gospel of the kingdom of God through the whole world. When that is accomplished, Satan will be released and the final battle will take place. I think the church in the first century, remember, this book had to mean something to the first readers. I think when they read this, maybe a light just all of a sudden went on in their head. Do you know how powerful Rome was and the Roman machine? It could crush and snuff out nations and peoples and cities just like that. Why is it that it did not snuff out and crush this insignificant small group of men and women who were followers of Jesus Christ? I think it's because Satan was bound from deceiving the nations and rallying them against the church before God's time was determined. I think this is great news for the church as well. We read that text often. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Why? Because God has bound them. God has bound Satan. And so right now is your opportunity and my opportunity to go out through all the world and share the gospel, to go to Molokai, to go to Turkey, to go to Asia, to go wherever God calls you to go with the gospel because Satan is bound. And the gospel will reach the ends of the earth. Secondly, so that's what's happening on earth. It's only one piece of what's happening on earth, but John is telling us that on earth, Satan is bound so that he cannot deceive the nations, so that the plan and purposes of God for his church are worked out. But then he moves to heaven and he says, okay, so what's going on in heaven? Well, he tells us here in verse four. Then I saw thrones and seated on them those who to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their heads. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's that thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were over. We'll come back to that. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death, the second death, by the way, we will all die one but once, but if you die outside of Christ, the second death is being sent to the lake of fire for eternity. We'll talk about that next week, and then we'll get on to happy stuff <laughs> the new heaven and the new earth. But they will reign with him for a thousand years. So now we've got a picture of heaven. And what's going on in heaven is that Christ is reigning with the saints. Then I saw thrones. This is why I think it's heaven. The word throne is used 49 times in the book of Revelation. Twice it's used of Satan's throne on earth and the beast's throne. The other 47 times it always refers to thrones in heaven. So I think now John is seeing heaven. And on them sat those to whom authority to judge was committed. Who are there, who's occupying the thrones. I think John says the souls, not the bodies, the souls, they're, they've got robes on, but it's not the resurrected body, I guess that's what I'm saying. The souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who hadn't worshipped the beast or its image and received its mark. In other words, the followers of the Lamb, the saints who are now in heaven. You might remember that is the saints in heaven in chapter 19 that are described as being part of the army of god that will come back from heaven to wage the final battle against satan and the beast and the ten kings they will come back to earth with our warrior king on the day of judgment Remember, God said to Jesus in First Thessalonians, or, or God said in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14, that God would bring with Jesus those who had previously fallen asleep. In other words, the dead who are now alive with Christ in heaven. They'll come with Jesus when he comes back to earth. I don't know what their nature of the reign is. I have some suspicions, but all I, all I will say is that they're reigning in heaven with God. And the Bible talks about the reign of the saints with God in heaven. Blessed and holy, he says, is the one that has part in the first resurrection. So what is the first resurrection? I think it's Christ's. Christ is the firstborn from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a really significant passage on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul, after talking about the significance of the resurrection and the necessity of the resurrection, he says, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Jesus Christ is the first one who was raised bodily from the dead. He's the first one that that has been raised with a body from the dead. And then he goes on and uh, and he says that we read this in Colossians, and he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Christ is the first one to be raised from the dead. So if we are united with Christ now, then we are part of the first resurrection. It's not our resurrection, but it's Christ's resurrection that we are part of by virtue of our being united with him. That's what the Bible says, right? That that if we've been buried with him, we've been raised with him. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And so if you are a Christian today, if you are in Christ, you have been raised with Christ in his resurrection. You partake in the first resurrection. Jesus, or Paul goes on to say, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ he shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits; then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. When Christ comes back, this is what Paul describes in the Bible, in a place. When Christ returns, we will be united with our bodies. Our bodies will be raised. That's what Paul says in, in Corinthians. So we will then experience full resurrection when Christ returns. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God... Or kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every power and every authority. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. This is Paul describing the last days. Saying Christ must reign right now until he has put all enemies under his feet. And when that occurs, the end will come. He will come back to earth with the saints. And we will forever be with the Lord. So we are reigning with Christ. Not we. We will if we die before he returns. But everyone who dies in Christ is right now alive with him reigning in heaven. That's incredible. I, I think that's just extraordinary news. It says in verse, in verse 5, they came to life. Do you know that if you die in Christ, you don't stay in the ground? You don't stay in a vase in, in, in somebody's mantle. You come alive. You're in the presence of God. You're reigning with Christ. That is incredible good news and hope for the people of God. Death cannot hold him. Death cannot hold us by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. And so this is what John is describing here. During the thousand years this, this thousand-year period, those who have died in Christ have been made alive by virtue of Christ's resurrection and now reigning over this earth with Christ. This is great encouragement if you've lost a loved one who has died in Christ. I've had people say to me, I can't imagine my loved one in the cold ground. They're not in the cold ground. They're in the glories of heaven, having come to life by virtue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, we've got Satan bound from deceiving the nations. We've got Christ in heaven reigning with all the saints who have been made alive and are now with him. And thirdly, the dead stay dead. Notice what he says in verse 5 there. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years are over. This is horrific. This is describing those outside of Christ. This is a way of saying that they have no spiritual life. They had no spiritual life while they had breath and they have no spiritual life now in death. They remain in the grave. And they remain there until the day that Christ comes back. This is terrifying news for those who are outside of Christ. Because what it says is that the moment you die, if you die outside of Christ, you are forever separated from God. No second chance, no third chance. This is why it is so critical that while you have breath, while you hear about Christ, to set aside your rebellion and your hard-heartedness to... Set aside your stubbornness and your pride. Say, Jesus, I need you. The dead stay dead. So then John describes what happens when the thousand years are over. So we got a picture of the thousand years. Not everything that's happened in the thousand years, but Satan's bound. Christ is reigning with the saints who have died and gone ahead of us, and the dead are dead. Then you come to verses seven to ten. What happens when the thousand years are over? Well, Satan is released to deceive the nations. Many want to pin this down day. I, I don't think we can do that. I, I don't think we know when that day is. Other than if we're on the earth when it happens, and it may already have happened, we will begin to see the ramping up of worldwide opposition to the church. Because that's what Satan is going to pull off. He's going to pull off this final, last stand, massive battle of all the pagan nations and people against the people of God. And he will bring them together, and I love the, the, the reference here, against the camp of the saints. You kind of get this picture of this little group of God's people, although it's a massive group of people. This camp, and it's surrounded by those that number more than the sand of the seashore for that final great battle so i don't know exactly when this will take place but let me read a little bit of a scripture from second thessalonians chapter 2 i think we overlook this chapter as the people of god and we need to hear it and so i'm going to read it now concerning the coming of our lord jesus christ That's what we're talking about, right? The return of Jesus Christ, the appearing, the revelation, the coming of Jesus Christ. Concerning the coming of Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, our resurrection. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. That has happened and it will continue to happen. People will say, well, the day of the Lord has already come. You've missed it. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now. There's that language of bondage, of sealing up, of holding back. You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. At the coming of the Lord, then the lawless one will be revealed. And the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and foul signs and with all wicked deception. There it is. He's released to do what? To deceive the nations. And so here, he works that with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Paul says the same thing that John is saying here. In Revelation chapter 20, the release of the lawless one, the unbinding of Satan, will be a short time, but it's described by various Old Testament writers as a time in which there is none like it. Or in the words of Daniel, a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning, or as Jesus said, for in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So Satan is going to be released. And there's a war that is anticipated. I'm almost done. It's important that we get, get through this. He says there, and he's released To deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. It's the same battle that's described in Revelation chapter 19, where God says, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the lamb and his army. It's a gruesome picture. This notion of eating the flesh is meant to not necessarily be taken literally, but to remind us of just an incredible victory. And in many places around the world still today it is seen as a desecration to not bury a body this is an utter destruction of the enemies of God to such a degree that they're not even granted the privilege of a decent burial Gog and Magog are never been identified in the book of Ezekiel 38 and 39 you gotta read that because Revelation 20 is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel in Revelation 38 and 39. Where there he describes Gog and Magog coming against the people of God. And it's meant to symbolize a massive innumerable host of the enemies of God coming to fight against God. And so great is the defeat that it says that it would take seven months to bury all the dead. With the bows and the arrows and the shields alone, Ezekiel says that there was enough firewood for seven years. And this text of Revelation of the birds eating the flesh is taken exactly from Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 17 and 18. Just like in Ezekiel, so in Revelation, though, we have the picture that God is in control, that God... Says when, that God says how, and that God knows how it will end. Abraham Cooper once wrote If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came into view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem, by comparison, a mere game. Not here but up there is where the real conflict is being waged. And so we have a picture here of Satan unleashed, but of being destroyed by God, by Christ on the white horse. And finally, we have the unholy trinity cast into the lake of fire. Remember, Revelation is bringing to end world history as we know it, in particular the last days and the great enemies of God and the church. We saw the destruction of Babylon In Revelation chapter 19, we find that the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. And now here in Revelation chapter 20, we find the final piece of that puzzle, that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were being tormented day and night forever and ever. You see, Revelation 19 and 20 are like layers. Uh, Let me... uh, uh, I'm maybe dating myself. I remember going back in school sometimes. We had maps. And they, they were cellophane maps. And so you'd start off with, with, with one map. And it would have maybe just sort of the outline of a continent or a, a country. And then you'd, you'd take this next cellophane map. And you'd layer it on top. And it would show you the rivers and the lakes. And then you'd take another map. And you'd lay it on top. And it would show you the, the mountains and the valleys. And then you'd take another map. And it would layer something else. Same picture. Same picture. Different perspectives added on it. Revelation 19 and 20 are describing the same period of time, just with a different picture layered on top of it. The last battle, where Christ comes on a horse and defeats the enemies and sends the beast and the false prophet to the lake of fire. Revelation 20, the last battle where the armies of Gog and Magog are defeated and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. This is an amazing text. I hope I've not troubled you. I've been worried about this text for months. I hope it's been helpful. Because I want you to go away from here encouraged today. Even if you don't agree with me, what I wouldn't say is go back and read the text and wrestle it through yourself. But there's some big picture things that I think are so encouraging. The church will prevail. We might seem small, even in Parksville and Oceanside, a few hundred of us, if you took all the believers in the area, we might feel outnumbered. But we'll win. And I don't say that with arrogance or pride. I say it with humility and thankfulness. We'll win. I'm so encouraged by this one picture that I've been having so hard a time getting out of my head and it's just expanding, but they came to life. I'm so glad that so many friends and loved ones that I've buried or been to their funeral are not in the ground. They are alive with Christ. Incredible hope. So I hope you're encouraged by the word of God today. One more tough passage next week. And then uh, on to bigger and better things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. It seems rather arrogant to stand up here and kind of say this is world history. This is the history of the world. Who am I to say any of that? To talk about it with any kind of confidence or precision. And Father, I am so convinced that this Bible contains the very Word of God, which describes the history of mankind. And it has described it so accurately in the past that I trust its descriptions for the future. And so, Father, I pray that as people leave here today, they won't think, wow, that was pretty arrogant of that guy to Describe the end of the world but they'll leave here thinking wow somebody knows how this world is going to end and is in control of its end I want him to know me help us I pray in Jesus name Amen